So we're starting to see in many of the areas within the country, some of the pressures that come along with growing so fast. And so public opinion now says, what is immigration an answer to? And have we thought through, you know, the infrastructure and all the other things that are needed to grow at the pace that we're growing Welcome at? to Canusa Street, a podcast at the intersection of the issues and policies between Canada and the United States. Here are your hosts, Scotty Greenwood and Chris Sands. Welcome back to Canusa Street, everybody. I'm Scotty Greenwood with the Canadian American Business Council. For a few more short episodes, uh, I'm with the CABC, and I'm joined by my fabulous co-host, the Honorable Christopher Sands uh, of the Woodrow Wilson Center. Hey, Chris, how you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you very much, Scotty. And I'm going nowhere. So I don't know whether that's good or bad. (laughs) Going nowhere fast, meaning you're not leaving Wilson and you're not leaving Canusa Street. Uh, as as I am, but that's a story for another day. We have a great podcast today with a good friend, really smart guy who knows everything about statistics. And statistics, <laughs> you know, can tell you a lot of things about life and our society and everything else, truly. And Anil Aurora is his name. You'll introduce him properly. But Anil and I have known each other. I can't, I was trying to think how many years, but it's been I mean, for sure, more than 10, maybe not as many as you and I, Chris, but uh, we go back. So I'm excited. I haven't seen him in ages. I read about him uh, in the newspapers, of course. But why don't you introduce our guest properly, and then we'll get right into it. Absolutely. Um, Scotty, our guest today, Anil Aurora, is the Chief Statistician of Statistics Canada. He was first appointed um, Chief Statistician in September 2016 and then reappointed in June of 2023. So obviously so good they renewed him. <clears throat> which hopefully Canusa Street will be renewed for another season two. As chief statistician, in case you don't know, Anil has led the agency through several high-profile initiatives, including updates to the Statistics Act, which oversaw some greater authority for statistical operations, the establishment of the Canadian Statistics Advisory Council, and the overall modernization of the agency. He oversaw the successful conduct of the 2016 and 2021 censuses of the population and agriculture in the introduction of numerous initiatives, including the Disaggregated Data Action Plan, the Quality of Life Framework, and the Census of the Environment. So over his 28 years at Statistics Canada, Mr. Aurora has developed systems that will provide Canadians with online access to interactive data and publications and the current census methodology that allows Canada to complete their questionnaires, Canadians, to complete their questionnaires securely and online. And we're online today. Delighted to have Anil Aurora as our guest. Welcome. Thank you very much to both of you for that very warm welcome. For a while there, I was wondering who you were talking about, but but seriously, it's a pleasure to be with both of you. And as you mentioned, our relationships run deep. And in some cases, you know, even beyond this portfolio, as you know, Chris. Yes, yes. Well, I was fortunate to have Anil as as the client for one of my classes at Hopkins, where he helped us to, to work through some Health Canada issues, which were tremendous. So I know you have many hats. Every one of them you look good in. <laughs> but some are probably more fun than others. So let's talk about some things that are right in your wheelhouse. And let me preface this question by saying, you know, for years and years, I always said the U.S. population is 300 million, the Canadian population is 30 million. And then somehow, when I wasn't looking, you announced recently that the population of Canada is actually 40 million. So that's, I've got, I've got to update my own thinking about it. And I would love to know, Anil, from your perspective, 
what kind of growth or, or what kind of factors led to that kind of demographic growth? And also, has the U.S. kept pace, you know, or is Canada growing faster or slower than the U.S.? So I, I don't know if you have at the ready. I know you know everything about Canadian numbers, but I'd be interested in comparison also with, is it three still 300 million and now you're 40 million or has the U.S. gone up too? So what's, what is driving that kind of demographic growth and what's the comparison? Well, thank you, thank you, thank you. You're absolutely right. And, you know, I would say even in Canada, in, in when in mid-June we said, by the way, we just passed the 40 million population mark, a few Canadians took note and said, what? When did that happen? How did that happen? Yeah. Um, you know, so it really did, you know, sneak up on, I think, a narrative that was there before, which was, you know, we're in the 30 something. Most people would have kind of, you know, still said we're we're there. What's interesting is that, you know, Canada, you know, for the last 15 years and even, even you know, going back a bit, like has been growing at a tremendous pace you know in the last two senses fastest rate of the you know g7 you know five point you know four in the previous five year five point you know two in the last and that is a significant pace at which this country has been has been growing i mean obviously there's a decision to grow so it's it, it didn't just happen you know there's there's some some policy choices that the government's made to to you know to to get us where we are but it is absolutely growing, not just faster than the U.S., but, you know, really of any of the other, you know, G7. And frankly, even when you look, you know, expand that to the G20, you know, Canada has been growing at a, at a just a just a tremendous pace. And so, yeah, it is it is in that relative sense growing at a faster pace than the U.S. What's interesting is that in Canada, we're not growing because we're having more babies. Our fertility rate keeps on going down. In fact, we're down to 1.4. And so, you know, the U.S., for example, is growing more organically, like more, more, more domestically. Two thirds of its growth comes from, you know, internal growth and a third from immigration. Whereas in Canada, really, we're looking at almost all of our growth attributable to, you know, to to immigration. And as, as it pertains to the labor market growth, almost 100 percent of that is now because of of immigration. That. You know, that's really interesting. And you're right, it's a choice. I, you know, I feel like comparing Canada to the United States, immigration is relatively uncontroversial in Canada. It's like the whole country made a decision that we want to welcome people from around the world. Whereas in the United States, it's actually quite controversial, right? People want to pull up the drawbridge. And is that is I mean, I'm oversimplifying it a nil, but is that is there a political consensus in Canada even still that uh people coming from around the world is good, good for the country, good for the economy, et cetera? Yeah, I think that is a fair statement. You know, 70 plus percent uh of Canadians, you know, favor immigration, 80 plus percent of Canadians you know, see it as vital to the, you know, to the labor market growth, making sure that we have the kind of people with the services that we need, the tax base and the dependency ratios, all those kinds of things. But more and more, though, we are starting to see, you know, for example, you know, 30 plus percent of the population in Canada saying, well, yeah, we like it, but really we'd like immigrants to have, you know, be more connected to Canadian values, whatever that means in a sense. And, and you know, recently, 
you probably have been following the news, which says we've got a housing crisis in this country. Right. I was going to ask people. you. Right. And so I think, you know, some people are starting to question whether we've got the right pace. Are we going at a pace that's, you know, faster than our ability to, to accommodate? I mean, in 2022, we welcome just over a million people in this country. I mean, just think about it, right? A country. In one of, year? In one year alone, now 600,000 of them were temporary and non-permanent residents, 400,000 Amer- uh, 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 immigrants. And, and you know, of course, as you as so many other countries, we've taken, you know, asylum seekers and, you know, of course, the Ukraine, the just unfortunate situation in Ukraine, et cetera. So there's a lot of factors. But, you know, in 10 years, we've gone, you know, we've tripled the number of students in, in the country. So I think we're starting to see in many of the areas within the country some of the pressures that come along with growing so fast. And so public opinion now says not that they're you know, all of a sudden against immigration. But, but you know, people question, in a sense, what is the what is immigration an answer to? And have we thought through, you know, the infrastructure and all the other, you know, things that are needed to grow at the pace that we're growing at? Uh, let me follow up on that, just to, sort of about understanding that number in terms of where it is. Are you seeing what we've traditionally seen in the U.S. and other places where immigrants are coming and moving to big metropolitan areas, or is there a distribution that's seeing some of them in rural areas? How, how where, What's the geographic distribution of all your new Canadians? Well, we used to say, you know, most of it is an MTV phenomena. That's, by the way, Montreal, Toronto, and Vancouver. So most of the immigrants go to, you know, one of those three centers. Now, in the last 20, 25 years, we've started to see a little bit more of a distribution towards, you know, the, the second kind of tier of the of, of the CMA, the sense of metropolitan areas in Canada. So we're starting to see more, uh, you know, people going to Edmonton and Calgary, obviously the West with the oil and the and and the and the, and the attraction there. Starting to see more people in Ottawa and in you know Winnipeg and 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 other areas within the greater Toronto area. You know, so we are starting to see a little bit more diffusion to other centers, but by and large, I mean, you know, it's a it's a it's a city's phenomena. We did see in the last while a real resurgence in Atlantic Canada, which, as mm. you know, many people would have known for a while. You know, they were thinking about what do we do about all these towns and what do we do? Like, are we going to pack up things and shut things down? Well, you saw immigration actually kind of you know change the landscape in many of the Atlantic Canadian cities as well. So it's not just a you know city story, but it's also a regional story and you know, it's an economic story as well, because obviously, you know, immigrants go to where those opportunities are. And so if you see the oil and gas sector doing well, well, you see a little bit more, you know, of a shift into Alberta and and, and some of the Western provinces and to Newfoundland with the offshore. Um, but we are, you know, we still, I would say the majority of the people, the immigrants that come in do go to Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver. And then, as I said, the, you know, our second tier cities, which puts a lot more pressure, right, in areas that are already stressed when it comes to transit and housing and healthcare and and all those other issues. Absolutely, and I, I remember you know, Scotty mentioned Canadians' positive attitudes about immigration, which are still holding. But part of that, historically, if I'm if I'm remembering right, was that Canada was selecting immigrants who assimilated well because they had college degrees or skills that were needed in the economy. When you look at people coming in, you've got temporary foreign workers, maybe not permanent. 
is are the new Canadians coming in as assimilatable sounds like the wrong word, but are they as easy to integrate into society or are you getting people with a variety of skills and maybe having a skills mismatch? So that's part of the economic grind or or uh, anyway, tell us a little bit about what people are bringing to Canada when they get come. Well, first of all, let me just go back in history for a bit. So pre-1967, you know, Canada had a, a you know, a kind of a, a, you know, a real affinity to, in you know, to inviting people from Europe and the United States. And, you know, I, I would say more of a, you know, the white kind of population. And then in 1967, the country, you know, made a real conscious change to say, no, I think we, we're going to have to invite, you know, people in this country that have, the kind of skill sets that we need. They know one of the two official languages. And so it's kind of like a point system that favored, you know, success. And and that success, I guess, you know, in, in terms, you know, I guess it relates to economic integration. And then, right. you know, people go to, you know, where their families might be or friends might be on that, you know, turns into social kind of, you know, integration first within their communities of, you know, where they come from. And then, you know, broader into the, into the kind of the Canadian society. So, so 67, 1967 was a, was a real turning point and it changed the nature of the population in a very big way. You know, so prior to that, you know, so we've kind of had sort of three big waves of, you know, immigration, one right after the first world war, second one after the second world war. And then I would say we're seeing that third wave play out now. But the waves are very different. You know, the first two waves was really European and, and American and so on. This wave, you know, started back in the, you know, after that 67 change, where now it's more Asian countries, it's, it's you know, African countries. And so that changed the whole nature of the racialized population in Canada. And so today we're talking about, you know, a racialized so immigrants make up about 23% of the population in Canada, racialized population you know, around that same magnitude, a little bit more. So the the nature of Canada has changed in a very significant way. In a sense, there's a critical mass now that you know, kind of, you know, communities that you know are, are 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 can can you know have the kind of support in the social networks. You're starting to see more representation in in corporate Canada and the political systems and so on. So I think. There's a very different tolerance or a very different acceptance and a very different kind of view about the ad advantages of immigration. Now, having said all that, to your point, you know, even though so we're now selecting, right? We we select what are the skill sets, what are the language, you know, all those things, as you said, that you know, increase the probability of somebody succeeding. And so the promise of Canada, in a sense, is is you know, plays itself out. You come, you work hard, you make good choices, you got a great, you know, shot at success. Well, I would say, you know, the, 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 there's some stresses right now, you know, COVID obviously, you know, disrupted everything for everybody, you know, for you know, a couple of years, nobody came to the country, just like, you know, nobody, nobody went anywhere. Well, what, what happened at that point is the government made some real choices because businesses were screaming for people, universities were worrying about, you know, are they going to have the revenues, you know, because there's a huge dependency on students and foreign students and so on. So the government relaxed a lot of those kind of policies where it said people who are already here, you know, can stay in a sense, right? Or made it a lot easier for them to stay. And so some of that, some of that growth was that pent-up demand and the fact that people who are here, you know, basically went from being temporarily here to now being permanently here. So so it's 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 shifted in a in a in a big way. 
the numbers and and those numbers, as I said, now are you know two thirds of of the immigrants that come to Canada come from Asia. They come from India, China, Indonesia, you know, and then you see you know all the other countries and 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 so what was pr- predominantly you know white and Europeans now is the is the exact opposite. Now we're seeing less and less. So the country is more, I would say, heterogeneous. So in a sense. You know, you're also reflecting the values of a much larger racialized population. You know, when you talk about you know acceptance of of immigration, and and in many cases, you know, when you look at like in Toronto or you know you look at Brampton or you look at you know parts of Vancouver, you know, we're talking about in some of those neighborhoods, seventy percent or in excess of seventy percent are you know people from India or people from China or you know, so we're talking about this kind of you know pockets where. You wonder who the the old term of who's the visible minority now, right? So, so it's 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 so assimilation or you know integration or whatever is really different. Rural Canada is very different. About five percent of the population immigrant. That's kind of you know expected to go to about ten percent. But when we're talking about Toronto, you know, in the next twenty years, not even twenty years, we're 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 we're, we're expecting the racialized population of Toronto to be in excess of seventy percent. You know, when we're talking about Calgary, Edmonton, you know, Ottawa, in excess of 50 percent, you know. So who's who's integrating with whom? You know, I guess, you know, you could ask that question as well. But this is fascinating demographic and fascinating changes that are happening. And they're happening at a pace that is just truly incredible. It's it is fascinating. And and it and it's one of the maybe politically incorrect terms that people used to call it is majority minority. But you're right. Like, who, who is, you know, who is the majority? Anyway, it's and the political discussions and ramifications, both sides of the border are interesting. Well, look, we're going to take a little break from this fascinating conversation with Canada's chief statistician. And when we come back, Anil, I, I want to ask you about what else do you keep statistics on besides population and demographics? Because I feel like your job might be measuring other things too. And I would love to just hear some fun facts, maybe things that Canusa Street listeners don't know uh, about what you measure and why it's important in policymaking. So we'll be right back. What did Prime Minister William Lyon Mackenzie King and President Woodrow Wilson have in common? Yes, they both led their countries during wartime, but they were also the only leaders of their countries to hold a PhD. At the Wilson Center's Canada Institute, we follow these academic civil servants to bring the public the best nonpartisan research and analysis. We're the only think tank in DC focused on this vital relationship. So in addition to the great repartee you get to hear on Canusa Street, head over to wilsoncenter.org to check out the Canada Institute's work and events. Welcome back to Canusa Street. I'm Chris Sands, and I'm here with Scotty Greenwood, and our guest this week is Anil Aurora, the Chief Statistician of Canada. Welcome back. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> and thanks, Chris. So we've been talking about population. And by the way, we can come back around to that um, because it's fascinating. So no problem. But let's take a little a little side street here away from population statistics. What else do you measure, Anil, and, and why is it important? Well, so, you know, in the United States, there are sort of 13 you know, major statistical organizations, right? From Bureau of Economic Analysis, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, U.S. Census Bureau, you know, and then you've got, you know, the, 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 the you know, the variety of, you know, uh, justice statistics or agriculture statistics or transportation statistics, which are decentralized. Of course, there is my uh, colleague, Karen Irvis, who is in the White House and under the Office of Management and Budget, who 
has his job of, you know, hurting the cats and making sure that the system kind of works as a cohesive whole. Well, in Canada, for the most part, all of that is centralized under Statistics Canada. So, mm. so when you say, what do you do, Neil, in your spare time? Well, we have 450 different programs that cover the whole span of social, economic, and more and more environmental statistics. And then the integration between all of those uh, so we do the census every five years, unlike in, in the States, you do it every 10 years. Uh, you have, of course, the American Community Survey, which is a rolling kind of, you know, uh, the equivalent of our long-form census. Um, but, you know, you put out the inflation, well, you know, uh, you, you, we put out the inflation. We So all, any kind of, any of the big socioeconomic indicators that you talk about, whether it's trade, whether it's retail, wholesale, you know, what's going on the uh, environmental side of things or you know, on the labor force or the unemployment employment rate, we do that here at Statistics Canada. So 450 different programs, the census on top of that, and then the integration of all that. Uh, so this is Canada's national statistical agency. And we actually not only feed the policy requirements of the federal government, but we're integral in actually meeting the needs of our provincial and our territorial needs, our municipal governments that need the data. And in fact, what we do isn't just a passive provider of data and feeding the policy landscape on all the areas that you can you can think of, but it's actually ingrained into the way that our democratic system and our governance systems work. So, you know, we collect taxes at the, for the most part, the federal level, and they get redistributed. Those taxes get redistributed. Right. Of course, it's one, one is on per capita, but even our, you know, our harmonized sales tax, it gets collected in one spot and then gets redistributed based on Statistics Canada's work on, you know, how those categories are being consumed out there and the proportion of taxes that go out there. So the redistricting in the, in the, in the House of Commons of so the whole democratic representation, which is similar to, you know, what the census does in the in the states. So Stats Canada is kind of, an, you know, it, it is the integrated system in Canada for all the official statistics. Okay, that's interesting. But let me let me ask it a little bit differently. So I know that you count people in different ways. Would you count trees like on timberland? Is that is that part of your remit? Just as an example. Interestingly enough, now we don't have people going, say, one, two, three. But, you know, there are technologies now that right. allow us to be able to do that, you know, using satellite imagery and so on. But but that but um, does that come under your remit or no? Yes. Yes, okay. it does. So, All right. So that, that says, tells us how broad it. OK, let me ask you this. You're a career public servant. You've had, as Chris described in the introduction and as I've experienced, because I've known you, I think, in three different portfolios, a very distinguished career. So Health Canada, Natural Resources Canada, and this is just your career in government, not to mention the rest. Um, and now Stats Can. What's your favorite portfolio? Uh, or if you put it Stats Can, let's say you got to, you, you can't, you can't say I love my current job. What's, you know, based on your experience, what's the most uh, interesting? You know what? I'll, I'll answer it in the following way. I think being in this agency gives me that bird's eye view of, you know, what's going on in almost every portfolio out there. You know, we do. We just released, you know, yesterday the Health of Canadians report. You know, we are, you know, we're talking currently about, you know, housing and, uh, uh, you know, the affordability issues of this country. You know, we're 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 segmenting. You know, what is it? What is the lived experience of our youth today, you know, and, and what's going on, you know, inflation and, and its impact on, you know, as a deterrent to 
investments in housing, for example, or you know the affordability question that I met. So being at Stats Canada is unique and it's special because I get to work with almost every single colleague across the whole federal public oh, yeah. service. Sure. And and be able to, you know, shed light on 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 important policy issues or help them, frankly, decide whether, you know, their strategies or policies or regulations are having the kind of impact that they want it to have. So I love where I am because it gives me that intellectual stimulation. It gives me that kind of you know bird's eye view of not just what's happening in one sliver, you know, but, you know, how are the trees that we've got, you know, actually impacting you know, the the environmental uh, footprint, the carbon sink, for example, and what does the impact of the wildfires doing, you know, on the environmental side, but also on the economic side, because right. clearly, you know, those trees have a huge impact on, you know, lumber and even, you know, Canada, US trade when it comes to it comes to these commodities. So I do, I love the fact that, you know, this gives me that view. I, I mean, really enjoyed Health Canada because, you know, that responsibility of making sure that our food and drug supply is safe, is 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 in itself such an important role, and I but it absolutely, was hard, man. It was, that was a tough job. All these jobs are, you know, in the public service. Let me just be really, and I'm not just saying that, but these are tough jobs because, frankly, yeah, yeah. there's just sometimes just no right answer, and and these, you know, the kinds of issues are really the nasty issues, and they take a long, long time, you know, to kind of get traction and 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 moving forward. That's what keeps that's that's what's kept me in the public service, frankly, for. You know, thirty-five plus years now. Wow. Let me let me ask you about something. I know a lot of statisticians, you know, are confident with their data in describing what happened and how it evolved because they've got the numbers to show it. But I want to ask about forecasting. And forecasting is always really important because if you know there are going to be 10% more kids, you got to have more spots in schools. And there are all sorts of public policy consequences to forecasting. How do you feel the state of forecasting is, maybe state of the art globally, because there's certain limitations, but also how you feel StatsCan is doing in terms of telling us a little bit about what's coming over the horizon and among Canadians and what we should prepare for? But what a great question. I, so first of all, I, I would say national statistical organizations are, are quite careful when it comes to getting into the forecasting game, because one, because we have this reputation, a very strong reputation with the kind of methodologies and the, you know, the processes in place and the transparency that's inherent to, you know, as you said, when we put out a number, we stand behind it. And that's why, you know, it kind of differentiates itself as official statistics, just because of the rigor that goes into it. Forecasts by its very by their very nature kind of present two challenges. You know, first is that they're based on a set of assumptions, right? And those assumptions can change very rapidly or, you know, with the economic or social or, or other factors. And so when those, you know, when those assumptions change, well then the forecast has to change. And and so you know, all of a sudden people will, will go, well, but you said yesterday it, it was going to be this and you're this. And today you're saying, you know, it's this. And so, you know, it kind of, you know, kind of, you know, butts up against that credibility of, you know, why, why, why are you saying one thing today and, and another thing tomorrow? And it's a little harder narrative to explain. Yeah, but the, you know, but the input changed or the, or the assumption changed, you know, and frankly, population estimate is a good example of that, right? I mean, so if you're following, so we have eight different scenarios of population estimates that we put out into the future, you know, based on based on high, medium, and and low growth scenarios. Well, I just explained to you in 2022, we had a, 
an unprecedented million you know people into Canada. Well, obviously it's going to change the medium growth you know scenario to a, a higher growth scenario. And so when people look at a moderate or a medium growth and they go, well, what is that? And that's what you said yesterday. How come it's so different? It, it does put statistical offices in a little bit of a yeah, but you got to read the details and you got to work. So that's the first thing. The second challenge it puts for national statistical offices is that well, you know, people say yeah, but you know, if you put out the, the a forecast of something, you know, aren't you likely to you know fudge your numbers so they look like you know the forecast, you know, and and clearly <laughs> nothing can be further from the truth. So it does kind of you know in a perceived way put people in this or or, or statistical offices in this kind of defensive mode. So all, all that to say is that's the reason why statistical offices shy away, you know, from doing a lot of this economic and you know other forecasting in a in a very big way. It's not to say that we're not there. We have social policy, you know, simulation models, we have a demographic, you know, model, and we're doing more and more modeling. And we during the COVID crisis, we were front and center when it talked about, you know, the modeling and the you know, what what kind of PPEs we needed, you know, based on sort of the, you know, scenarios of how COVID might kind of change itself. So we have the capacity, we have the knowledge, but we're cautious. We're cautious about going too far. However, we're not cautious in the sense of providing inputs to others who want to be able to build those models. And so a lot of the models, whether it's digital twins or, you know, whether others are forecasting or, you know, economists who are saying, okay, based on the trends now, you know, you can see the next quarter's growth to be this or or whatever it is, they use heavily our data to be able to do that. And that's, I think, a comfortable place for national statistical offices is to give people the robust input so that those models can be, you know, uh, well-defined. And they can then go ahead and say, here are the underlying assumptions, you know, that that fit into that model. That that leads me to ask a, a, a question. I don't want to I don't want to be fuzzy about it, but there's a part of that that's political because policymakers want to have the stats show they're doing well, and you know you're going to get a little bit of political back and forth. But in our sort of Western societies, we deal with that uncertainty with a lot of transparency and trying to make access to information. So if you question what somebody says, go back and look at the numbers and see how it goes. And a while back, I remember just as a as a sort of academic, it used to be that StatsCan publications were in print form and there were university libraries that just had drawers and drawers of them. And we've now gone to computers and so on, but we've also gone through CanSim to fee-for-service access and subscription and so on. How do you square, uh, you know, a government's desire for you guys to bring in some revenue to offset your expenditure and all that prudent fiscal stuff with the desire to be as open and transparent as possible with data so that people can play around, see for themselves what's going on and try to really be transparent so that you got people looking over your shoulder doing that fact checking or, or maybe just crowdsourcing on some of the assumptions. Um, how do you balance that? Mm -hmm. Well, first, first of all, let, let me just make it really, really clear. Um, we charge, um, you know, externally, okay, people who are coming to our website and will, you know, actually, everything on our website is free, freely accessible, etc. Okay, so where we do have a cost recovery, okay, and that's really important to note, is where somebody says, you know, that standard product that you put out, I'd really like it by this, by this instead, or this geography or whatever, or I'd like you to help me, you know, take this variable and if I link it to this variable, you know, at the aggregate level and help us with, you know, the, the particular need that I have, we say, yeah, happy to do that. But we're going to recover the costs, okay, because this is a unique 
proposition for you as a business or an entity or whatever, it's not generally applicable to all of, you know, all Canadians, you know, so you should really pay. It shouldn't be the taxpayer that subsidizes. And frankly, it keeps demand and supply in check. Okay. And so, and those rates are regularly reviewed to make sure that we're neither profiting you know, uh, or or excessively charging people or subsidizing. So it's cost recovery when it comes to those kinds of things. Now, what happens that we routinely will view those needs and demands out there. And if those demands are growing and growing, you know, we will try to see how we can make that as a part of our standard offering and then make it free. Okay. And that's why you see hubs and portals and you see more, you know, analytic reports and data, et cetera, because we're constantly surveying that need out there because that's why we exist. We're there to serve the public. Why would we put more impediments than you know that that prevent people from using it? So we want them to use the data and we want it to be easy and we want them to understand and 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 use it. So there's a lot of proactive efforts that, you know, and I brought in a little bit of that that kind of thinking way back when when we made a lot of those publications free and you know redesigned Kansom back in the in the in the 90s to you know today it would be some of our outreach and some of our partnerships and so on. So in many cases, what we're also doing is enabling others like chambers of commerce, like the business data lab that you may have heard of and so on. So we're enabling them to then serve a community. You know, we're working with indigenous populations to see how we can, you know, increase their, their the competence and the capacity so they can do a better job of serving, you know, their respective population and, and on and on and on with the Federation of Canadian Municipalities, et cetera. Now, having said that, there is, you know, we're a big department and, and in a given year, we will do about 100, you know, between 125 and 140 million dollars worth of cost recovery business with other federal government departments. So Health Canada has a policy to do, you know, oral health or whatever. And they'll say, can you you know, give us a, a, a view about what's going on? And so yeah. then we will do a cost recovery set of surveys or oh, work in the government. Exactly. Yeah, that's the- interesting. No. Well, we're coming to the to the end of our time here, Anil. So I want to ask one last question of you as the chief statistician. So our audience is mostly Canada and the U.S., but we have people from around the world that that wander over to Canusa Street. What's the most surprising statistic about Canada that you think people don't really appreciate that you've learned over your years? Yeah, look, I, I think there are so many, you know, I, I think, you know, a lot of people are surprised to learn, you know, the, the you know, the, the natural resource endowment that we have in Canada, you know, compared to what's going on in, in other parts. Most people are surprised at, you know, how diverse we are as a, as a, as a country and how respectful we are of the diversity that's, that's in this country. Most people are surprised to learn, you know, that, you know, even though we make a 0.5% of the population of the world that we're, you know, when it comes to the size of our economy, ninth, you know, in the world, most that people don't, yeah. you know, so, you know, I think it speaks to the, to the strength of this country, obviously the rich endowment that we have, the innovative nature of our people, the diversity of thought, you know, the democratic kind of institutions and their strength and what an amazing country it is. And so most people don't, put it all together to see the richness that Canada is. I love I love that answer and Canada truly is a wonderful country. It's uh it's my second favorite actually <laughs> country <laughs> in the world because because I'm American of course. Anyway, 
Anil Arora, Chief Statistician of Canada. Thank you so much for spending time with us. It is um, always great to see you. I hope I see you in person one of these days, but thanks for joining us. Thank you very much to both of you. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. It was great to see you again on Canusa Street. And you know what? You're always welcome because here you will always count. <laughs> there you go. But <laughs> always count. Okay. <laughs>
We're not going to talk about me migrating away from Canusa Street. Not yet. Other Street. That's a that's a that's a little tease for people who haven't been keeping up with LinkedIn or whatever. <laughs> and, uh, Stay tuned. There's some new talent coming to the street, and that's also very exciting. So anyway, talk, see you later, my friend. All right. Stay tuned, everybody. See you later, Scotty. This podcast is brought to you by the Canadian American Business Council and the Wilson Center. If you like this episode, help others find our show and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.